everyone. Welcome back to US China series, which does, and the interview I've got today with my good buddy, Mike Edwards, doesn't fit neatly into US China series. It doesn't fit neatly into Climate Transformed and is more of our ongoing exploration into a truly global issue which is the uh, which is the search for which is the search for yield and mike is going to be the first of many interviews that i hope to do over the course of the the months and quarters ahead exploring alternate sources of yield. Mike is the deputy CIO of Waste Multi Strategy Advisors has been a friend and colleague for mine of for quite a few years now and mike knows the macro space incredibly well is a closeted china hand i think is that a good way to describe it mike these days sure and mike is going to join me today just to have a discussion about yield in in all its forms and mike we're going to break the conversation down and start with a macro framework and i think a lot of these conversations be them over an interview like this a podcast or over a beer chatting about this sort of stuff often loses gets lost in the debate over where yield is going, right? Because at the end of the day, you can have a view, I can have a view, we can go back and forth. But frankly, if you're having this conversation over the course of several hours, it might be worth sort of trying to validate, are we going to see normalised yield curves, a steeper, what I call a steeper risk curve, all that sort of stuff. We've got 55 minutes. Let's forget about that. Tell us what your framework is for the next five years. And what do you see as the future of yield in all its forms? Yeah, no, that's great. And thanks for having me, Paul. I enjoy doing this and fun conversation. I think that question and sort of the, the, the shape and future and trajectory of yield really have to do with a combination of demographics, which I'll get to in a second, and I'm sure we'll touch on more, and then the, the effectively the management of cycles at this point. And starting there, in terms of the management of cycles, I mean, we're immediately in answering that question going to get to this this debate around, is it transitory? And I think you can sort most of the folks that you have on uh, and then you talk to, and we debate this into deflationists and sort of permanent, you know, technology and productivity is the answer versus more sort of cyclically minded inflationistas or what have you more recently. And I, I at, at, at the risk of trying to keep feet in both ponds on a, on a long-term view. So in your five-term, five-year, 10-year type of view, I absolutely think that technology is changing everything. You know, I uh, ascribe to the phrase software eating the world, that sort of thing, and absolutely believe that. But I think in the shorter term, I'm going to make that 18 months or so. So call it three to 18 months. And, and I would take 18 months as being the other side of transitory. Um, I think there are very significant structural forces that, including really, I think the two most important ones are going to be supply constraints and underinvestment in physical infrastructure. And I include energy production in physical infrastructure. So that's one piece. And then I think the second piece is I don't like the term deglobalization. I think that that is overwrought, but I will at least, and you and I have used this term before, I, I would subscribe to the concept of re regionalization. And particularly on the U.S.-China axis, and I'm not saying that just by virtue of the, the auspices of a U.S.-China series or that's something that, something that, that we talk a lot about internally is the arc from spending, call it 15 to 20 years on the arranged marriage of the Chinese and the U.S. economies to what is now looking like at times a messy and at other times a more organized divorce. And that those forces which create the one emphasizing in some ways the other, meaning re-regionalization and the supply chain, having to build redundancy in 
and resiliency in, and, and those concepts come out of our mentalities from the pandemic as well, having to build those in really highlights some of the constraints in our supply chains and where notwithstanding the fits and starts of demand and everyone you know, speaks about the reopening trade and reflation and all of these sorts of things, which I'll leave alone for the moment, but the constraints as pertain to the broader in long-term inflation environment are very, very evident right now. And I think those are going to be larger forces, even assuming a, a steady rather than accelerating demand picture over those 18 months. In the longer term, the forces of technology are just, I mean, I can't avoid the prop of just holding up an iPhone and thinking about how much of our lives are spent on this form factor, which replaces so many of the others and create an unbelievable amount of productivity, which we see by virtue of being able to do this from anywhere, right? This, this conversation. So between those, I think those are opposing forces. The longer term is the secular, the shorter term is the more cyclical. But I do think that's why we're having volatility in the yield curve, right? especially the front end right now, less to do with Fed tapering. And I think the Fed has very capably separated the taper discussion from rate hikes and that sort of thing, which are, are more longer dated. So hopefully that helps at least think about the way that, that I think and we think about duration as being what for us is an investable time frame in that three to 18 month window. We think that the non-transitory inflationary forces are the stronger ones. Got it. So what you've described is a transition, and I'm not implying that the world was frictionless pre-COVID, but the world was was pretty darn efficient in terms of we knew where supply chains were, we knew who our partners were, we could get away with, you know, companies could get away with optimising their cash where every piece of, every bit of free cash flow could go into a share buyback and the Apple supply chain, for example, was just so slick and so smooth that they could keep iPhones and, and, and AirPods at you know, within you know, just days worth of supply. What COVID has done, and COVID is one of these examples of introducing friction to the system. And, I, and I've sort of used this expression a lot lately, which is it's friction that causes inflation, inflationary pressures, because it's the tanker crashing in the Suez Canal that sort of upends global trade. It's a COVID outbreak in, in Asia that shuts down a port, which means that things can't spin around the world quickly enough and the like. And I just taking your, your argument there and you, you mentioned, you said 18 months or so, right? And again, my structural disinflation reviews, but let me throw it out to you, at you that it's going to be a little longer than that, right? Okay. And again, I'm arguing against myself here, right? Yeah, I'm okay. And this that. goes back to the issues of friction, right? So if I think, if you think there's, there was three main frictions in the world, there's COVID friction, which should be temporary, right? There could be some scarring and the like, but over time, supply chains may get back to normal with that added cushion that you you alluded to right there's us china there's us china friction which could be issues of supply chain and you know we did an event last thursday where both ey and the us china business council had done recent surveys about supply chain migration out of china and we're just not seeing any right so that was an interesting dynamic but us china tension clearly a be that tech decoupling etc there's friction there and the third fraction is a big one, and you alluded to this with energy prices. The climate transition is a huge friction, right? Goldman's right, $50 trillion by 2050. Well, as far as I'm concerned, yes, that's productive investment, but there's a hell of a lot of friction embedded in that as well, right? So 
I look at particularly the US-China side of things and the climate side of things and say, this may not take 18 months, right? So particularly the climate side of things where, you know, the notion of 40 million EVs sold by 2025 and $150 oil, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Parameters, right? So, could this last longer than what you're, than what, what I think, and what you're alluding to? I, I, I appreciate the introduction using friction. I'm going to change that a little bit, but I absolutely agree. If we're going to take an 18 months as as making a market there, I'm going to take, I'm going to bet the over every time on that. I'm, I'm with you on that concept. I, I guess I would, and I agree with your three, those three forces. I would, in a moment, I'll add a fourth, but I think. Rather than just thinking about it as friction in wheels that are turning on stationary uh, centers, as it were, I also think that one of the things that can lead to inflation is changing the, we can call it the policy equation, we can call it sort of the value structure that is applied to economic decision making, including by corporates. And I think that those are things that point to the shift. It's, it's cliche, but it's what you were talking about from a just-in-time mentality, maximizing efficiency, to a just-in-case mentality, maximizing resiliency, and in some ways, stakeholder, not just shareholder benefit. And I think the, and I, I want to spend some time on, on some of the environmental considerations that I absolutely agree are, are, are vital and are very inflationary in my view, at least in the short term, maybe not in the ultra long, not maybe, certainly not in the ultra long term, but in the, the short and medium term, I think they are. The, the fourth thing that I would add to your, to your list would be social considerations in the labor force. And I don't think they're just driven by the sort of frictions of the pandemic or those differences. I think there has been a wholesale reweighting of preferences, some of which are generational and some of which are some of which are not, some of which are just a change from the way we thought about priorities from two years ago. And some of those forces in ter- some of those forces are deflationary and some are inflationary. Example, Having a work from anywhere approach in some companies, rather than having an office in San Francisco or New York, which are the most expensive two cities in the country, if you close that office, disperse your workforce, and maybe pay your workforce marginally less to allow them the flexibility, you're saving rent and you're saving maybe a little bit on salaries. The uh, you know employees get a psychic benefit; they can reallocate their work-life balance, etc. Win-win-win. Deflationary. The inflationary side of that, though, societally, I think is an emphasis which we're seeing coming out from a policy standpoint of UBI, universal basic income, of social programs that are generally lifting wages and of having a higher reservation wage, not because somebody moved from San Francisco to the outskirts of Boulder or whatever and was living somewhere cheaper, but because that person quit their job and doesn't really want to work right now. And in order for that, I mean, Amazon today raised its minimum wage to $18 an hour. That's not just to do good. That's to actually incentivize people into the warehouses and into the logistics centers. And I think you're seeing that as both not just a you know sort of traditional supply demand model, although it can be modeled that way, but also as preference changes. So having a, and this is not just a US phenomenon, you're seeing the same thing in, in Western Europe for the most part, but having those changes 
from a policy standpoint, with the injection of liquidity that comes with them, and in many ways could be arguably become a necessarily repeatable phenomenon, the liquidity, effectively monetary and fiscal, feeding one another here. And we're getting into the realms of MMT and whatever, so I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But there's no question that those are inflationary forces. Whether they offset the others, we can we can debate. But I think those are those are as much values related and changes in attitudes to towards work and towards balancing effectively economic activity in people's lives with other considerations. Those have changed and they've moved the curves up, as it were. The and it sounds like seems like a bit of a monologue here, so I'll pause in a second. But the 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 I, I'm labeling it ESG, but the environmental point to me that that is a completely separate and has everything to do with 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 underinvestment that has resulted from uh, preference changes, which changes I think are absolutely critical. I mean, this is a subjective, this is me speaking, not as a deputy CIO or investor or what have you, but I think they're absolutely important for the world, but they're creating very significant disequilibria in markets. The, the amount of CapEx that is going into not just energy and the way we'll talk about what you're seeing in that gas and oil price, even coal prices following those and uranium prices following those, the phenomena you're seeing there, it's not just a pandemic phenomena. There's some copper mine in, in South America wasn't, uh, wasn't operating or there was a strike or you know, you had closures here, hurricanes, et cetera. This is chronic underinvestment over the last several years because the cost of capital for these firms is now prohibitive. Whereas you can go work, build a solar project, which is laudable for LIBOR minus, right? Because of green bonds and the like. If you want to go drill a new frack, new acreage in the Permian, it's going to be very expensive for you. And these firms are not incentivized to do that. And similarly, their mandates and their the, the views in those boardrooms is that that's all they're meant to do. And if they're not doing that, they return cash to shareholders. And, and I think with those frameworks, we've had chronic underinvestment, again, not just in energy and not gas and, 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 and oil, but also in extractive fields generally, such that we want to go electrify the grid. And by the way, the the government answer here to prices, you know, to, to energy prices is the plan that Jennifer Granholm rolled out last week. Right, which is getting solar to, I believe, 42% of U.S. production by 2050. Well, to do that, we are going to have to double the amount of solar every year for the next four years and then double again again to 2030. And we're also going to have to completely overhaul the grid. The amount of rare earths and copper and probably aluminum and other materials it's going to take to do that is in excess of the total amount of actually dug supply that exists over the next four years. So if we're going to do that, we better be digging new mines. And as far as I can tell, we're not really doing that. So these things come together, that green agenda, which is absolutely critical, really does face an important supply problem. And the solution to that supply problem, in turn, coming back to our inflation discussion, it's going to be resolved through price. That's how disequilibria are always resolved. And in this case, it's going to send the price of all these things higher to incent that production and also to incent switching. If we're filling up cars at $7 a gallon instead of $3 a gallon, the people who weren't previously going to buy an EV are going to think harder about it. So it will reinforce itself and ultimately resolve, but it's going to resolve through price. And long story short, very, very inflationary in my view in the short term. 
Right, and because again, the you know, we this is a, an energy transition, right? So again, I think that the consensus of thirty million EVs sold in twenty twenty five way under, because you and I, you and I come twenty twenty four, we think ourselves we need to buy a new car. We're not buying we're not buying an ICE. We're buying an electric vehicle because simply the resale value is going to be far far better than that, right? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that on the demand side. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I agree with that on the demand side. I think the demand will be there. It's really a question, can the supply keep up? And I realize this is sort of an anecdotal snap, snapshot in the moment, but we joke, my partner Jordy and I joke, we both ordered Teslas, him more than a year ago, right? me nine months ago. Where's, where's my Tesla? I mean, this is a constant, almost joke at this point, but the, the supply chain just can't deliver against this. There are some specific of the moment reasons for that, but I would not assume that we can produce at that level of implicit, we'll call it EV SAR, three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, I think that's going to be the bigger constraint than having late adopters and reluctant adopters. So I think that the key, the key thing here in terms of a conversation about yield is to think about the central bank response and primarily the Fed response. And I think it's very important to add to that the ECB response, because clearly climate is now a central determinant of, of policy within the ECB, right? So we have this inflationary spike in the near term, right? And I think that's pretty clear that this is coming. Or sorry, you've articulated a, a, a pretty hard to argue against framework that that is coming temporary or not, right? The question is, are central banks going to respond to this sort of inflation? Is this the sort of inflation in this new world of cycle compression, which has gone on really since... Since 2000, uh, since the ECB, since Draghi did whatever it takes in in 2012, that was the point in time that they'll do whatever it takes to crush the cycle, yeah. right? So since that time, you can't have bankrupt. There's no bankruptcies. There's no cycles. There's you know there's no mass. You don't have the Schumpeter struck credit destructive destruction that you would see normally, right? Do central banks respond to this sort of inflation, or are we destined to live in a world where? rates are suppressed, we have situations where we run, like we do today, emergency policy measures at a time when it's pretty clear that we don't need emergency policy measures. If the consequences are simply not there, that we're prepared to tolerate higher levels of inflation during this uh, transition, that the cost of funding is going to remain anchored at zero, and whether you can actually fund at that, based off that, if you're a oil and gas and coal company, well, zero rates mean nothing because your spreads are so high. And obviously, if you're a clean tech company, then as you alluded to in the solar world, you can trade at LIBOR negative. Yeah. Does it even matter in the context of Fed policy, which at the end of the day is going to be the anchor for global yield? I mean, I agree that it's it's the anchor. I mean, I think just to emphasize the impact and the importance even further, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, is we've now gone, and this is sort of the reality for really for bond investors of the yield picture painting. We've gone from a prior 10 years, right, in which yields were global yields were nominally near zero or in some cases negative, to a place now where real yields, not nominal yields, are negative everywhere in the world except China. Period. It's, I, I mean, this is transferring wealth from bond investors to real asset investors and equity in that period. Not a debatable point. Obviously, we're sitting here with the what do we do? And I'm sure we'll come back to that later in the conversation. But 
that is a self-reinforcing phenomena in many ways. And so the, the, I, I, I want to give two answers to your question, which is sort of what will central banks generally do here? And, and I wanna, I'm going to say this where I don't think this is the right forum to discuss the sort of the internationalization of the renminbi and the potential for the PBOC to depart from U.S., effectively from the Fed and the ECB and the BOJ. That is possible. And the point I made about Chinese, China continuing to have positive real yield is an important one that could eventually empower that. I would The reason I would table that, aside from our not having the time to discuss such a complicated topic, is also that the Chinese operate on a much longer timeline than typical Western investors and really this discussion, what you meant by that. And I think we forget that at our peril in terms of thinking about really near-term reaction functions and the sort of myopia that infects us all as, as, as market watchers and Bloomberg subscribers and whatnot. But to come back to your question, the, there, there, I think there are two components. One of them is that I think the Fed, is, the Fed in particular is quite tolerant of momentary inflation and in particular of a changing composition of, the, of inflation. It's easy for me to say this on a day where we had CPI below expectations. Why was it below expectations? People are going to point to airline prices and used cars and cars and this sort of thing. And these are, you know, effectively in this weird, everyone is thinking about the, the, the pandemic as a cycle, but it's not a synchronized cycle. The global experience of the pandemic is totally asynchronous. Asia is now coming out of an experience with the pandemic that, the, that was not at all similar to the U.S. And the U.S. in turn has sort of bookended a, a European experience where the U.S. has more intensity with Delta now. And that's affecting the way we price services and labor returning to work, et cetera. So we could spend an hour on this. But the point is that we're going to be able to decompose those inflation prints all the time. And that's probably what the Fed is going to do. I do think that the two forces that are going to be much more sustained and are going to be harder to answer are going to be owner equivalent rents and energy prices for reasons we've already talked about. But especially the rent point, but both of those bring me to the second answer to the question, which is it is increasingly difficult to disentangle the tolerances that are implied within monetary policy from fiscal policy. And the reason is, in my view, we are in a much more populist environment than we've been at any time in the last sort of, well, I shouldn't say at any time, in, in the, within the last three to five years, of which the last 18 months include the pandemic, we've been in an increasingly populist environment globally. And that's something that ultimately underpins policy in ways that can, if, if done with a plum moderate some of the otherwise intolerable points around some of this inflation. And specifically, I'm thinking about the U.S. here, and I'm thinking about some of the the UBI-related, I should say related, but some of the things that fall under the umbrella of UBI. And those are particularly the child tax credit and also some of the rent relief that we've seen, which has expired to some extent in terms of the, the abatements on actually kicking people out of their dwellings. But as far as there being large funds established to help renters, those have only been 15, 10 to 15% utilized at the federal level. And as relates to the child tax credit, which is an enormous subsidy in people's pockets, I certainly ascribe to the belief that when you have very popular programs that are set to expire, 
they are usually renewed, usually on a bipartisan basis. The child tax credit is something that actually conservative Republicans and progressive Democrats can agree on. Should we incent people to have more children? Well, yes. And I said we'd come back to demographics. Demographics are always at play in a populist context. Here, I don't know that it's a little known fact, and the expiry of the child tax credit is a week before Christmas. Are we really going to take people's checks away, as it were, going into the new year a week before Christmas? I seriously doubt it. Now, this obviously, this may take some maneuvering, and I'm not suggesting that like every aspect of the, the monstrous $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill is going to go through as is, but this general force is there. So coming back to the inflation point with the Fed, when you think about why like if you take energy prices, why are gas prices, prices at the pump, always such a problem in U.S. politics? Because people drive. And the most vulnerable population to that is going to be the cohort with the lowest earning power. Well, when you're putting an extra $300, $600 a month in people's pocket, they can probably tolerate a $3 at the pump to $3.50 at the pump much more easily than they could without that. And so by underwrite, by cushioning the blow, as it were, to the, the lowest income cohorts, you are actually raising the tolerances there. And therefore, in the Fed's construct, and I, I'm speaking about this as sort of the, people use the term the woke Fed, but what I'm, I mean in this context is that the Fed has very explicitly woven into their mandate to resolve income inequality. Resolve is too strong of a term, but to address income inequality. This, I forget the exact wording of it, but was the broader topic for Jackson Hole this year. And by having a cushion for the impacts of inflation to allow, in the, in, in the view, assets to, to rise generally and to raise incomes uh, and have the ability to, to tolerate the margin pressures and everything else that comes with that, you are underwriting the Fed's higher tolerances for inflation, in my view. So it's very difficult to disentangle in, in this respect what are ultimately populist fiscal tendencies, really globally, but I'm speaking about the U.S., from the tolerances that are built into current central bankers' settings. Got it. I do want to dive into sort of future trends in asset management a little bit, mate, but I do just sort of want to make one observation. I mean, I think we are generally, we overestimate political, the prospect of political change in the United States. We are on this two-year, this two-year election cycle. So if we were to turn around and in... January of 2023, wake up and have a Tea Party movement in the United States again, would it be truly surprising, right? So again, statistically, the Republicans should take the House back in in November 2022, right? The swings, the swings against the incumbent, it's been two times since 1938, the average average swing is 27 seats. So statistically, we will have a polarised or a, a, a polarised Congress again, which implies very, very little gets done. So the implementation of UBI-style policies or the continuation of those, all things, you know, excluding we're not taking away child's tax credits at a week before Christmas, can these radical policies actually be implemented, even though I think we could all see in the years ahead the need for for some form of universal basic income because of you know just simply you know because of technology because of robotics and all the things that we we know about right but are we going to be in a situation where we get the sort of structural sweeping change that can structurally elevate or alter the 
four-decade disinflationary period that we have witnessed? Probably not. I think I agree with your premise there. I do think it's worth saying that the what you're really talking about in terms of the tendency for the House to flip against the president who was elected in the prior cycle and this sort of thing, it, it really is a sort of mean reversion, as it were, or reversion to the center, if you want to think about it that way, that we've enjoyed in the U.S. for quite some time. I do think it's a dependable phenomena. One of the things that makes it dependable in this cycle is not necessarily the, as it were, overarching policy wisdom of the independent voter, right? So much as it is, quite frankly, gerrymandering and the ability, the mathematical ability to hold on to and add to add to seats because of the dispersion of power in state houses and this sort of thing. In this particular instance, I definitely support the, the prediction that the House will probably flip. Um, the Senate's probably too close to call right now. But in the immediate term, that actually adds to the urgency to get, again, probably not anywhere near the three and a half trillion type of and remember, that's three and a half trillion adding, depending on how you look at it, trillion plus bipartisan bill. I mean, so so this, even if you cut that in half, it's still the largest effectively infrastructure plus. I mean, the, the Democrats are calling it social or human infrastructure, but basically the largest bill, spending bill ever um, in, in adjusted terms, not even unadjusted terms, obviously unadjusted. But what I would say over the longer term, because you're, you're asking the question in a, in a broader disinflationary forces context, is that mean reversion. It's happening at a time where our politics are incredibly polarized. And I realize it's easy, our politics here in the U.S., that is. Although there's, there's, there's evidence of polarization, and certainly in Europe and the U.K. as well. It's tempting to say, oh, well, that's, we're in the, in the midst of it and always feels extreme in the midst of it. And we've seen like times like this. I do think that the loneliness, as it were, of, of centrists and moderates within both parties is at a generational high right now in the sense of having wings of each party that it's not a matter of don't talk to one another. I, was, I did use the example of the child tax credit before, but don't even agree on fundamental facts and you know, truths, as it were. And that's a very difficult place to legislate from. And so I do. I think that is a, a force that ultimately leads to the the the, um, the sort of stopping of the gears. So I, I would agree with you in terms of having sweeping inflationary forces that come from the legislature. But equally, I think a lot of the a lot of what we're talking about ultimately was crafted by the executive and kind of snuck in there. And I do think it puts us in a place where, and this is sort of a broader populist point, where a lot of the, especially regulatory work that needs to get done, and, and I'm thinking about this more in an antitrust context than anything else, is really frozen. It's, 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 you're having things that have to grind through the courts and are not happening legislatively or not happening in the executive. I mean, I think it's a really remarkable contrast between the U.S., and China, where even though I think people look, certainly markets look at, at as being very risky to see some of the crackdown on big tech and separation of Alibay, Alipay from Alibaba and shutting down the hours in which people can play games and how that hits Tencent and others and the minimum wages hitting May 20, we could go on, right? Despite that, obviously, markets are not reacting favorably to that. I do think there's a certain amount of, you called me a closeted China, and there's a amount of closeted envy that I think Western policymakers look at that with, say, well, many of those things are things we would like to do, but we can't. 
100%, right? It's, it's 100% right. I mean, we talk about populism and obviously the, the Orbans and Trumps come to mind, but Xi Jinping is is just, he's, all, he's mastered this art. I mean, Absolutely. is there a more populist policy than turning around to several hundred million parents and saying, we've solved your video game problem? I would love <laughs> to be able to, I would love to be able to say, my wife and I would love to be able to say to our kids, Roblox time is up because Chairman Xi said so. Like, yeah. that would be amazing as it you know as it, i mean frankly not, not just just to put a, uh, a a different lens on this right when we think about the uproar in which a workplace based vaccine mandate an osha based mandate is being administered by the biden administration to absolute furor some of it right from a constitutional standpoint i'm not not making a political or subjective point here I'm just saying it's 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 an it's fury, it's political political hair on fire. But what that's ultimately doing is giving cover to governors and to companies to make a policy decision they wouldn't be able to do themselves. The Chinese government is masterful at that. You don't have to make it. We're, we're going we're gonna to guide you on the path to doing something that would otherwise be unpopular at the micro level, but maybe popular at the macro level. And I, I, I think that that is, it, it's almost a silly a silly hypothetical or adventure here to compare the two forms of government and two socioeconomic organization, organizational systems that are wholly separate and distinct, except to point out to your point, as it, as it relates to actually getting things done from a regulatory standpoint, as well as from a legislative standpoint, there's a lot of sand in the gears. There's a lot of friction. There's the, a lot of friction, Right. So, Mike, let's bring it back to sort of bring it back to the into the yield context. And I want to talk a little bit about. We'll go back to the original the original framework, which was, and again, sort of broad timeframes, sort of medium term inflationary pressures, longer term five to ten years for disinflationary forces, demographic forces take over. Right. So, so let's look at let's look at yield, and let's talk um, a little bit about long term yield. And but do me a favor, answer a question for me that I've never I've been doing this for a very long time. And I've never, ever, ever gotten a good answer to this one question. If I'm an endowment or if I'm a family office or if I'm a pension, why do I care about volatility? You care about volatility because it it effectively, number one, has a relationship to yield in, in terms of well, two different directions. One, the forces controlling it. We're speaking about the Fed before. I would argue that the, the, the Fed is probably more focused on minimizing volatility than it is on the absolute price of, of credit, effectively. Yep. That the, the one's more of a priority than the other. So as an input, you care. As a sort of output or a, or a behavioral measure, volatility is an input into the cost of making a bad decision. Or, the, or effectively the cost of, of short duration, which should have been long duration. So what do I mean by that? It's when you're in, if, you, if we go back to a mindset in February of last year, when people are selling risk, selling growth, selling everything under the sun, because they, don't, they either don't know what the policy reaction function is going to be or everything else. And we have realized volatility in the 50s and 60s, not the the low teens that we're used to, that environment can lead to very bad decision-making. It can also lead to opportunistic decision-making, but having a plan in place, as it were, ex-ante, 
is a function of your relationship to volatility or forward volatility. So I think coming in and out of those periods, I mean, we think a lot about, you could think about it as characterizing all of those, poly, the, 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 I think it's Warren Buffett's term of who's wearing a, ba- a bathing suit, who's swimming naked when the tide rolls out, right? Yep. Of making sure you have a bathing suit on is about anticipating where realized volatility could spike way above implied, which is an unu- in this environment with this Fed, with this central bank structure that we've been talking about as a framework, is actually the exception to the rule, not the rule. Right, but you've got two issues. Two issues at play here. One is if you're, if you've got the key of the your key problem is mark to market. That's that's a public public market equity creates more inherent volatility than private equity. And you've alluded to this in the past, said you've told me recently there's there's a bubble in, in, in private equity and venture capital. And I think that is in no small part driven by there's no mark to market per se. There's a bubble in things that don't mark. Bubble in things that there's a bubble in things that don't mark, right? But again, if, if you if it doesn't mark, you don't have to make a decision. Right. And 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 again though, and again, we might be looking through our careers might be in the wrong part of this, of the, the wrong long-term cycle where the 40 years that we've we've sort of we look through has been one where where if a, a dip buying, a structural dip buying mentality has worked on your favor. And you can ask if you if you again going back to the if you run a foundation, for example, and you have a 20-year time frame then volatility shouldn't play a part in what you do and the se- but the second part of all of this is the use of is the use or not of leverage volatility is really important if you le- use leverage where yeah you put it this way you've got to be really stupid to go bankrupt if you don't use leverage i would definitely agree with that <laughs> yeah that would be quite an accomplishment <laughs> you right. don't have to be stupid with the bank how do you go bankrupt <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so you know. So, at the end of the day, do the the whole. And I know. And I want you to talk a little bit about about the the market neutral fund and the like. Which, yeah. and let's be clear, that is a shorter duration strategy than what I'm than what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, actually, let's, re, let's rephrase this. How would a strategy like yours that looks through the world through a three to eighteen month lens fit into that endowment model? Yeah, great. So, and I'm going to come back to that with a, a sort of product lens in a minute in terms of what, what I think endowments and pension funds and insurance firms and the like are, and asset allocators generally, what they're, both what they're starved for, which of course is yield, as we've talked about, but also what the anxieties are right now that, that sort of feed that problem and that starvation. But I do think in, in terms of your, both the horizon, but more importantly, the, this point on where there's a, a bubble, my phrase, bubble and things that don't mark, it's really a function of liquidity, as you say. And for us, we, we think in daily liquidity terms. So our, from an idea generation standpoint and a deployment standpoint, we might look at longer, you know, longer duration, it may be three months, 18 months, one month, three weeks, what have you. But as far as the deployment is, it's hyper liquid and really hyper diversified as well. What I think we've seen as a trend and what's sort of, fueling that, I'm going to call it a bubble again, but the relationship is that you you can weather volatility if you're not taking a mark, even in some cases where there is leverage. And what we've seen as a result is in the broader asset class that is termed alternatives, right? So private equity, you can put venture capital in there sort of, but that's probably too risky. Obviously, hedge funds and to a lesser extent, some forms of real estate. 
You have seen, I think, over the last, this is not a pandemic phenomenon, but it's maybe accelerated as well. You've seen over the last five to 10 years, a very dramatic migration down the liquidity curve, as it were, towards less liquid instruments, basically. And as a result, you've also seen, which is a natural risk, you know, sort of structural risk management and business decision. You've also seen the the investor-facing liquidity profiles get extended further and further out, where you'd have people with daily liquidity versus quarterly liquidity versus yearly liquidity versus three to five-year locks, right? There are many, many hedge funds today with effectively three to five-year locks. They may have, they may trade more liquid instruments, but those are the liquidity terms that face investors. And for a lot of those, that's either sort of because they can, or in many cases, because they have to match their portfolio as their portfolio gets less liquid. And, and, and I'll give you, a, rather than sort of point out any you know, sort of particular trends on the asset management side, I'll point to a capital markets phenomena that is the aggregation of those trends. We are in the IPO market today. We are seeing a lot of, you know, I'm talking about hot IPOs and growth sectors, tech, internet, e-commerce, this sort of thing, and very much away from, we'll leave the SPAC phenomenon aside for a moment. But you're seeing a lot of IPOs price at the same level as the last venture round. Why is that happening? Because the last venture round wasn't raised, call it the C round or the D round. It wasn't raised by your Sequoias and your typical Silicon Valley venture firm. They're raised by, on the one hand, the T-Rows and Fidelities, and on the other hand, a whole bunch of hands that have moved into that space. And those were people that traditionally would have to access that sort of opportunity in the IPO market, and they now have access earlier. And so you've seen the market converge to that point where you're pricing at the last round and yeah, you're still in some cases getting a pop from there, which is fine, but the exposures are already established from people who have a liquid public market presence. You're seeing that market-wide. It's not a couple of players here and there. It's true on the long only. Again, I mentioned this sort of, I don't, you're seeing it among long onlys and you're seeing it among hedge funds migrate down that liquidity spectrum. And so the result is that you have, when it, when it, when you're at a place, if we had a sustained correction or a place where people actually have to take a mark, my colleague Jordy speaks about, which I completely agree with, that shorten cycles. We think about it as like speed chess. The cycles are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. If and as we hit periods of time where people have to have realizations within a short cycle, that absence of liquidity can work against them. Whereas heretofore, it's worked for them because if you get around to it, you might buy the dip. Otherwise, you do nothing and you wait till it's not a dip anymore. I I don't think anyone with a lengthy career believes that dips are over or will be permanently two to five percent shallow and won't present other either opportunities or, or pain points. But the reason that this has created such sort of dispersion within the product market is that a lot of, a lot of firms are migrating away from that sort of liquidity. And frankly, by, by contrast, we're migrating, I don't say towards it, but we're, we continue, we've not changed our mandate at all. And we continue to be hyper liquid and hyper diversified in terms of our deployment. And what that allows us to do in turn is to have a, a, a product suite with turnover, liquidity, the, the sort of reinforced factor and market neutrality that allows us to, to, to sort of harvest yield from, that, from those deployments. And we harvest that yield, really, you could think about it in, in, in relative value or effectively trading dispersion. And if you think about what dispersion really is, 
well, it relies upon the very volatility that you're speaking about. So we should benefit from volatility rather than be penalized from it in the avoidance of the of a mark mentality. And so in doing that and in maintaining with our partners, we've proved out over our 40-year history, very, very shallow drawdowns and hyper-liquid instruments, we can add layers of sophistication where we can actually structure those products. We have, for example, uh, bank-issued notes against our, um, effectively against our 40-act strategy. And that in turn allows our partners to, to generate dependable yield from our approach to trading a market neutral strategy that is that, that, that diversifies away a lot of that risk. And that is, and those structured products, you're taking Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan counterparty risk to basically take a five-year, 10-year back-tested earnings stream, right, based on this strategy. Correct. Got That's- it. It is both sufficiently liquid and sufficiently, we'll use the word, you know, predictable or dependable, given the, the history and the tools that we bring to bear to the strategy, that they can effectively underwrite a yield so that it's effectively a, a certain positive return. Got it. So with, so with the trends that we're seeing in terms of the push towards greater use of the liquids and, and the like, I'm going to make an assumption that your strategy sits in the income bucket for most pensions, endowments, foundations. Has that income bucket shrunk over time because of the push towards more liquids? Well, I would say I, I'm going to just quibble for a moment with the premise. I think where we find traction is with folks that are trying to replace less dependable pieces of that yield or bond or income bucket. So I would agree with that. But I think that in general, what we're seeing is that we are, we're sort of migrating from what used to be an alts bucket or liquid alts or that sort of thing to an understanding, which I think is really critical, that with the right tools, a liquid alt strategy or what we're really talking about is harvesting volatility produces an alternative yield, which can then sit in that, sit in that other bucket and be appropriately risk-weighted. Uh, that remains a, it's, that's, I'm going to call it an uphill battle that we're winning, but it is still kind of counter-trend to with a lot of folks who have a set of relationships, be it with various rating agencies or regulators, that they need experience, they need reps in order for this to get traction. And I feel like we're in the, therefore in the very early innings where we've had great experience with some of our partners who are showcasing that elsewhere, and it's the beginning of a trend. But I don't want to make it sound easy that you can just grab this and stick it in in another category. We're, we're fighting against inertia to do that. And like I said, we're, we're fighting and winning, so we're very proud of that. But it is, I think it's very, very early innings to, to be replacing, as it were, things that have traditionally been in an income bucket and this ex- exactly this negative real yields problem for bond allocations with alternative yield, which is what really these products represent. Got it. So this is a U.S. strategy, U.S. equity strategy. Well, we have globally, but the U.S. is the most liquid market and is where we have more. Got more it. So just, so just on, does, does, this, does this work in other developed slash emerging or, or the emerging uh, bucket as a whole? And if that is the case, can you convince U.S. investors to care about, to clear about global yield? or global yield sources? 
Yeah, so I'm going to separate the question as sort of an academic, not academic one, an intellectual question about the state of markets with what we're doing here at Weiss. We are our our product is a you know is a combination of effectively a, a defensive stream, a growth stream, and our multi-strategy set of strategies, which is itself 20 different strategies, which leans heavily towards the U.S. in terms of deployment. That in turn can be you know invested in that 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 set of in, in note form, that set of yield or in, in product form, that fund can be invested in by anyone globally. For example, we launched a USITS earlier this year, which is getting nice traction with European investors. It's the same set of strategies, but it, it is appealing to really anyone looking for that that return stream, which is your sort of, we, we, we do, we track very well on a sharp basis and they're looking for, you know, a single digit return, not a high octane, 30 digit, 20, 30%, 45, 50 vol type of strategy, which is obviously not where we are. In terms of folks where, you know, especially in emerging markets and where folks are looking to global bond markets for yield, it, it really is a function of risk appetite. The, the, the arbitrage here, as it were, to your point earlier, is if somebody wants to take, and again, this is sort of where the, the structured products that we focus on uh, are appealing, if someone wants to take a, a Goldman Sachs-like credit risk to access this return stream, that compares favorably to taking a the risk associated with buying bonds in the Philippines or Brazil or for that matter, China, which are places where, you know, if you are going to have very material real yields, even you're, you're going to be taking substantial risk alongside them. So I think there's a, there's a contrast there. I don't, I'm not going to profess expertise or steer your listeners to where the best emerging markets to travel to for real yields are. But obviously, we're seeing a very big distinction between the A-rated, double-A-rated, A-minus sort of risk and the, the associated profiles where you just can't find it. And I think that extends even to the IG market in the US now. Right, and that's just a flat risk curve globally. So, but, but have you seen any dispersion of performance in the, to use out the sort of the topic that we've brought up all through this conversation, did you have dispersion in the, in the pre-friction world versus the friction world we live in now? Have you seen performance, has there been any performance variability in this a world that could be more inflationary for the next three to 18 months? And are you expecting the performance profiles to differ over the next five to 10 years as that, if, if we are right, we head back to that, that deflationary tech demographic world that we talk about? I think we've seen these shortened cycles that have led to very significant performance dispersion. The thing I would layer on top of the, the cycle concept is also just where we've seen, just focus on this calendar year. I think there have been three major disruptions which have led to performance dispersion, at least among, let's call, I'll say hedge funds, but people who mark to market daily and care about monthly returns. The first was the, the GameStop kind of meme squeeze in January. The second was the Archegos-related phenomenon. And I think the third, which has probably affected less of the general investment universe, but still impactful, was the China tech crackdown. I think all of those were, to some extent, a function of liquidity conditions. I think the, the, I think the meme phenomenon speaks to itself when you have fueled by both Fed conditions and Donnie dollars or stimmy checks or whatever you want to call it, with people chasing whatever's promoted on their Reddit board. We all know what 
sort of what happened there and became impossible to short anything for a period of time. And really, I think you you saw, which de- definitely eroded alpha, you saw a replacement of single name shorts with indices and ETFs and this sort of thing. And the alpha erosion there is, is, is obvious. The Archegos phenomenon, which you and I have spoken about, I think was obviously an overextension of leverage. But in, in my, I wrote a paper where, which I titled Concentration is Leverage, in as much as that was the problem at that firm, was not just that they were extended leverage, but they were hyper-concentrated in a couple in really both from a factor standpoint as well as from a single name standpoint and couldn't get out of their own way. And the result was, as they were forced out of their own way, they took a lot of folks with them as well. Um, And that was was pretty disruptive. I actually think you could look at the sort of July into August, if we want to treat that as as catalytic of some of the the actions that Beijing took there. I think they're actually deleveraging in a through a particular lens. And what I mean by that is, and, and this is going to sound like the language of a market neutral hedge fund, but I think Beijing was getting short size factor and quality factor. They were taking mega cap tech platforms and saying, nope, you've had enough wealth generation here. You've had enough data aggregation here. You kind of run wild. And some of that has to do with domestic power phenomena and whatever. And that's not going to work, but we're not going to shut down the economy. We're going to continue to lend to SMEs and even extend our lending and sort of the credit worthiness there. And we're really going to use other, which we've typically thought of as FAI type measures to support the economy. We talk about how for a while in the typical investor's mentality, Amazon, Apple, Google, and for that matter, Tencent, Alibaba, at a stretch, maybe Baidu, these things acted like bonds for a while. Well, not in July and August, they certainly didn't, right? And so through that lens, I actually think that that has both liquidity implications, but also to your point, dispersion in returns are very real. And I continue to think, I mean, the thread through our discussion here has very much been how much geopolitics matters in a macro framework and in a yield framework. And with that geopolitical volatility on both a sort of trans-border basis, as well as with some of the populist phenomena we've talked about, I think with that volatility and those hypercycles, you're going to get more you know, events like this. They may be shorter dated, but they're going to lead to, to return dispersion and they're going to have to be navigated. And the scary and the scary scenario is that we are still anchored at zero and below in the in cash rates across the globe. Geopolitically induced volatility is still volatility. That's not a good outcome longer term. Sure, but in a way, it's an excuse to for for, for central banks where we're seeing in for, through our lens legislative volatility or or inability through other lenses, including in China policy changes. It's an excuse for the central banks to just keep foaming the runway waiting for that. Is the plane going to crash? I don't know. Let's make sure that we're well prepared if and when. Only one tool to do that, and that's liquidity. And that's the eradication of cycles. Yeah, or at least the dramatic, dramatic shortening of them. Got it. Thank you, mate. I'll leave our hours up already, but really appreciate this. Thank you very much, mate. We'll have to do this again very soon. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks, Paul. Cheers, mate. All the best. Bye.